Hey, everyone. Jose Nino here bringing you another thought-provoking episode of El Nino Speaks. And if you love controversy, make sure to get rid of all distractions around you today because my latest guest will have you at the edge of your seat. In today's segment, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Kevin McDonald, the author of Culture of Critique and the chief editor of the Occidental Observer. How are you today, Dr. McDonald? Hi, I'm here. Awesome. So before we start talking about the impact that Jewish influence has had on American politics, could you give my listeners an overview of your overall career? Because it is quite extensive. And I would say that you are probably one of the more polemical guests I've had, which is a good thing because my show is about testing the limits of free speech and bringing in as many dissident voices as possible. So please give my audience uh, a brief overview of your body of work. Well, I don't like to think of my my work as polemical, but my background is uh, I'm an academic. I, I uh, got a PhD in, in biobehavioral sciences and I did a postdoc in child development, uh, social development. A lot of my research uh, until the 1990s was on child development and personality and social development of children, that sort of thing. Uh, but I, my background was always in evolutionary biology. And so that sort of you know framed everything that I did. And in my 1988 book, I, I wrote about the Spartans as a group strategy. And to Spartans, the Greeks, uh, they were Greeks. They um, socialized their children to be soldiers. There was a whole, their whole culture was based on that. And they became a very powerful group in the ancient world. And then I said, after I did that, I, I decided, well, let's pursue this. And so I, even though it was very controversial, anything about group strategies was very controversial. And... Um, so I, I decided, well, I'll, I'll write about Jews because Jews have been around a long time. It's been a very powerful group of many historical eras. And it's been controversial. And, and so I thought it'd be a very interesting project. And it was. What I didn't really realize was that it was going to end up ostracizing me from pretty much the academic community, some of my family, and all that. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely been a downside. So would you say that your work on the issue of um, Jewish influence on American politics, would you say that your work was like the first of its kind in academic settings? Or were there any other intellectuals that uh, preceded you that kind of touched on the subject? Well, the topic of Jewish influence has been pretty much off limits uh, for a very long time. And, you know, Jews are very aggressive in combating ideas and people that uh, they feel are a danger to them or uh, criticize them in some way. And so you have to go back a long ways to even see any mainstream anti-Semitism in America. Uh, you have to go back to the 1920s, 1930s. But those, those were not academics, really. So, yeah, I was probably the first one to really try to get a— wide-ranging perspective on Jewish issues uh, that would include the history of, of Jews uh, in Europe especially, but also in the Muslim world. 
and then the history of anti-Semitism, and then finally the culture of critique, where I focused on uh, Jewish influence in 20th century America. And uh, it's, a, it's a culture of critique that has gotten the most intense criticism and hostility. So that's sort of where I came from, because, I, yeah, I don't know of any other real ac academic uh, treatises on uh, Jewish influence. You see, sometimes you see uh, anti-Zionist academics who are very opposed to what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, but they don't go beyond that usually. They don't talk about uh, you know, the, the Jewish power in the media, and a lot of them are in ethnic studies departments, uh, you know, in, in Middle Eastern studies, and they're, they're Arabs and other groups that, that feel particularly attached to uh, what's going on in, in Israel and the Middle East. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, it's pretty close to the first thing. And, and the thing is, it, it's a topic that's off limits, basically. You I mean, it's not something that academics write about. I mean, when Americans talk, when academics talk about the American power structure, they, they, it's like they don't even mention Jews. They'll talk about class differences, uh, but but they don't really focus on, say, Jewish uh, ownership and, and involvement in the media, uh, which had been going on for a very long time. And um, that sort of thing, and, you know, the Israel lobby. The one, one, one exception is the Israel lobby by... John Mearsheimer and Stephen Wall, that came out uh, 2007, I think. They are academics, Harvard and the University of Chicago. And, and they're, you know, they were emphasizing the Israel lobby and it's uh, how powerful it was, where, you know, the, the, uh, the fact that a lot of times what they advocate is opposed to Jew the interests of America as a whole. Uh, and um, they, they were very uh, hostile, very extreme hostility towards them. Oh yeah, and that they they uh, characterize Mearsheimer and Walt as shoddy research and and that sort of thing. Even those guys are even though these guys are at the absolute pinnacle of the academic world, they said they were shoddy research. And I, and I do believe that I think John Mearsheimer probably proposed this project, but he didn't want to do it himself because he knew there would be a lot of flack, and there was. And and the fact is that there, that this book it is a very important book. Everybody should read it. Uh, it's called um, The Israel Lobby, Your Newest Foreign Policy. And it hasn't had influence. I mean, the Israel Lobby is as strong as ever in Washington, D.C. And we are supporting Israel now in Gaza and the West Bank and the occupation and, and the second-class citizenship of even Palestinians living in Israel. We, we support that. And, and that's because the Israel Lobby is entirely behind uh, these policies. So, yeah, it, it hasn't really had an effect any more than my books have had any effect. But that's what the, that's the kind of fate that awaits you if you uh, venture into this territory. You are going to be ostracized. You're going to be hated. You're going to be uh, characterized as an extremist and a, you know, a Nazi and everything else. So get used to it. That's the way it is. I don't want you to spoil all of like the details of cultural critique, but could you give like a brief summary of what your book entails with respect to Jewish influence in American politics throughout the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, basically the idea is that uh, the Jews have risen to uh, powerful positions in the academic world uh, and that they have advocated uh, theories 
that um, well, they have opposed theories that they believe is are not in their interest, such as in in the 1920s and 1930s. It's very common to think that race was critically important in human affairs, and that and that uh, some races were um, you know smarter than others, uh, some races were more morally inclined than others, and that sort of thing. But then you had the rise of these Jewish movements, and they obliterated that. Even think of Franz Boas and Boasian anthropology. Well, they completely uh, you know, took that off the academic radar. I mean, it's, it was completely deposed as a, a scientific perspective, and uh, it, it was vilified. And so that, that became sort of mainstream science in the academic world. Uh, and that's that's just one example. In other words, Jews may think that a certain theory is not in their interest. I mean, right now um, you have uh, theories uh, about what's going on in Israel. You know, the pro-Zionists, anti-Zionists, and obviously the, the mainstream Jewish community, and I'd say the dominant Jewish community uh, in the academic world uh, is still very much on the side of Israel. So Jewish academics have consistently. Uh, not all of them, but uh, certainly the, the main thrust of their power has been to try to destroy the idea of race and to basically vilify white ethnocentrism. I mean, talking here about the Frankfurt School uh, of Social Research, they they uh, saw the problem as uh, the Jewish problem as white ethnocentrism. That that that's what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Hitler came to power. You say you had a very ethnocentric movement that despised Jews or disliked them. So they started to view the sort of homogeneous white societies as dangerous, that they could rise up against white people. And and uh, so you, I quote a lot of different Jewish activists who have said that, that their multiculturalism is safer for Jews, that they uh, thrive better in such cultures. Because they are, they are not. They don't stand out as much as a as an ethnic group. Now that may change. I mean, you know, a lot of the critics of the Gaza War are, uh, you know, ethnics in America. You know, uh, blacks, uh, a lot of Hispanics, uh, certainly the Middle Eastern immigrants. We've had many millions of of Middle Eastern immigrants, and they are very much on, uh, you know, in favor. Muslim immigrants, they're in favor of the Palestinians more. And so there's a rising movement against this, but it's still far from power. Again, the Israel lobby is about as powerful as it ever was. Uh, even though there's more dissent, there's some Democrat politicians who are very critical of Israel, like Elon Omar, Rashad uh, Talib, I guess her name, she's Palestinian, uh, and so on. And, and they are very critical of Israel, but the power still resides in the Israel lobby. So um, that's the sort of thing that's discussed. But the emphasis in cultural critique are on these intellectual movements, psychoanalysis, Boazian anthropology, the uh, Frankfurt School social research. But also there's a long chapter on immigration that Jews, because of this interest in multiculturalism, have long favored uh, very high levels of immigration from anywhere in the world so that they did not want the United States to be a homogeneous uh, white Christian society, uh, and because of the reasons I already stated, and so they they opposed the 1924 immigration law, which was framed in order to to keep the United States a basically Northern European Christian culture, 
they um, they based uh, immigration on percentage of the population as of 1890, when at a time when you know white Protestants were very much in control of America. Uh, but now, you know, we see that power has has completely dwindled, and uh, because of the immigration law of 1965, uh, that has all changed. And now we have multi-ethnic immigration from everywhere in the world, uh, and the Biden administration has just admitted, like, probably 10 million illegal immigrants, and they will stay in this country, and they will become citizens eventually. They're trying to change the demographic uh, balance of this country. And they have been doing that for many years, again, going back to the 1965 immigration law. The 1965 immigration law would not have changed the demographic balance of the country because it, it limited the, how many immigrants there would be. But since that time, the activists have continued to up the ante to, to want more and more immigrants and then to make, uh, in the, especially in the Biden administration, uh, to, to focus on uh, on making making illegal immigrants walk them in the country, they give them benefits, and, and of course they're going to come. Uh, in California, they have free, free medical care. Uh, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. So that's really the story. That, that set off this whole trajectory of leftist dominance of our culture, our institutions, and everything else. So that, that's the basic idea in culture of critique. Interesting. Let's... Uh take a trip down memory lane like back, say, centuries ago, because it's pretty well established that uh, the Jewish people have a history of being expelled from multiple polities, whether it's in Europe or even the Middle East. Based on your research of this subject, Jewish people have been expelled more from Europe or Middle Eastern countries, or has it been about the same well, there has been a long history in Europe, and I think European societies uh, have generally been uh, more open in many ways, especially Islamic societies were often seen by Jews as more tolerant of Judaism. But if you look at it closely, they, they were required to be in a subservient position, uh, that they did not were not able to dominate you know, financially and so on. And, and Jews, as, as time went on in Islamic societies, they were born more oppressed in the 19th century. And a lot of times European societies came to the rescue of Jews in these Muslim societies. But, you know, European societies, uh, you know, since the Roman times, you, you've had the uh, Jewish war uh, and uh, wars in in the in first century, second century A.D., uh, Romans destroyed the temple. Distribute, you know, enslaved a lot of Jews and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's seen as uh, part of the West. And then you have the Catholic Church, uh, very anti-Jewish in the fourth century. And then in the Middle Ages, there were ups and downs, but a, a lot of anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages was uh, fomented or encouraged or tolerated by the by the Catholic Church. And then, you know, you have the Inquisition in Spain uh, also very much a Catholic country. And then you have uh, pogroms in, in Eastern Europe because, you know, the, basically the, the uh, Jews were expelled from many countries in Western, in Western Europe, you know, um, England and uh, France and many, many parts of Germany. There were hardly any Jews up in Scandinavia, say. Uh, and, and they went east. They went to Poland and uh, the Russian Empire and that sort of thing. 
So the most Jews say now in this country, the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, if you look at their uh, family background, they come from Eastern Europe. But even in Eastern Europe, there's an awful lot of anti-Semitism. But Jews, as always, throughout their history, have made alliances with elites. In Eastern Europe, it was the the landowners and the aristocracy. And that's true, you know, throughout the traditional European societies. They they would make alliances with, with the nobility, uh, and oftentimes they were hated by the common people because uh, because these nobles uh, would, would allow Jews to to uh, lend money at very high interest rates, and they would enforce uh, you know these loans, and so they would uh, because it would benefit them. They would get kickbacks from the Jews. They they would they would have Jews collecting taxes. And so that uh, you know these Jewish tax collectors would be really brutal on non-Jews, and so they were hated. And 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 then eventually they these people had a voice and they were expelled. But it really was after the Enlightenment, when when uh, around the you know the 18th 19th century that that Jews really entered European Western European society. A lot of immigration from the East, and and they became an elite there too. I mean, they started you know buying up the media. Uh, and um, that sort of thing, and, and rising to academic uh, prominence in Germany and elsewhere, and having a big influence on politics in the 19th century, uh, but not as much as they had in the 20th century. So it's, it's been a gradual increase in Jewish power for the last 200 years, uh, but it's certainly very powerful now, and uh, you know, with wealth, with media influence, with influence on Congress uh, via wealth and uh, the media and everything, uh, that's where we are now. Going back to the Muslim question, because I I find this interesting, what initially made it more amenable for Jews to live in those polities as opposed to uh, Europe from the start? Because if I recall correctly, the Jewish population that was in Spain um, assist the Moors and Berber invaders in conquering Spain from Christians? Yes, and that, that, that's well attested. Uh, the Jews facilitated the invasion of the Muslims in the, in the eight, 7th, 8th century. So the Jews then were in alliance with, with these Muslim groups. And, of course, the Christians uh, hated them. And it was a very, very long struggle. And even then, though the you know the Christians were living with the Jews. I mean, uh, in the in the 14th century, when the, when the uh, when the Christians had regained a lot of Spain, uh, they were you know they wanted the Christian the, the the Jews to convert, and a lot of them did convert, but only in name only, and and they were still Jews. They they married each other, they did business with each other, they cooperated with each other, so they were still an historical group, uh, and that's what produced the Inquisition. Uh, so that you know, then in 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain, and uh, you have the whole Inquisition it lasted much longer than that. So the, the, you know, that's the thing about Jews end up resulting in hostility uh, in countries where they reside, and it's been a very, very common throughout history. Uh, whether it's in Muslim countries, in you know Christian European countries, uh, and, and so on. Uh, essentially, what happens is that Jews become an elite in these societies, and when they become an elite, or they make alliances with the elite, they 
they do things that are not in the interest of some sectors of the population. And the result is hostility. And if those sectors get enough power, then they are able to uh, expel the Jews or whatever. And, and that's that's basically the pattern that keeps happening over and over again. And you know, there's a real question as to whether this the current Jewish strategy, which is multiculturalism, is going to work. Because of, and we see now there's a lot of pushback on, on the war in Gaza that the Israelis are behaving extremely murderously towards the Palestinians. Like 23,000 casual uh, deaths as we were speaking, most of women and children, but an awful lot of men. So there's pushback. And really the entire international community, the human rights organizations, uh, what they've done, not only uh, in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. There's been a lot of of murders in the West Bank recently. Uh, And uh, even, even within Israel, uh, Palestinians uh, are second-class citizens. Everybody knows it. And uh, Israel's absolutely dedicated to that. And, um, you know, th- this is really destructive that's going on in Gaza. It's hard to imagine some kind of happy ending here. It- it's just not going to happen. It's not intended to happen. And, you know, the thing is, Israel can act with impunity because they have so much power in the West, and especially in the United States. I mean, President Biden has just completely knuckled under to the Israel army. I'm curious about um, that one point you mentioned with respect to um, Jews um, forging alliances with elites of the countries that they would like settle down in. How would they go about doing that? And what ultimately leads to like the complete fraying of those newly forged alliances in the long term? Yeah, well, basically, uh, Jews form a sort of middle a layer between the aristocracy and the common people uh, in many uh, eras in, in Europe, in the West. But then when they were expelled, they went to the East, and the same thing happened. And again, they would make alliances with the elites. They, they, these elites would protect them. The, the, these elites would, would allow them to do their, their money lending. These elites would allow them to collect taxes and so on. And that, that's what produced the hostility. And so you have flare-ups of violence and, uh, you know, flare-ups where, where the aristocracy would, you know, be forced, really, to uh, do something about it. So, you know, in, in England, the Jews were eventually expelled and... Uh, it was because there was an alliance with the with the nobility. Where, where, where they were really, it was the barons who were getting squeezed, and at that time, uh, and so they rose up, and they uh, were able to have influence on the monarchy, and the Jews were expelled. I think in twelve ninety was it? Yeah. So that kind of thing. In other words, there's a, there arises a conflict of interest between Jews and some segment of the non-Jewish population that feels threatened in some way, that feels that Jews are compromising their interests economically, typically. And um, these barons in, in England, uh, you know, they well, part of the big issue was all the debts they owed to the Jews and uh, with being enforced by the monarchy. And, and so they... Uh, the, the barons uh, had enough influence, I guess, to uh, 
I haven't read this stuff for a while, but yeah, they had enough influence to prevail, and, and the Jews were expelled. But that, that's a typical pattern, typical patterns throughout history. What do you think led to the domination of Jewish interest groups in American politics? Because when you think about it, from like the 1500s on, it seems that the more northern well, I want to say all Northern European, minus like Scandinavian countries, but the more cosmopolitan, capitalist-oriented countries like the Netherlands, the UK, and the UK, UK's progeny in the United States seem to be like the countries where you saw a strong degree of Jewish influence. Do you think that the relative openness of these countries in terms of both like economic and political inclusivity policies contributed to the rise in prominence of Jewish figures in these respective countries? Yes. And, and uh, you know, in 2019, I wrote a book called Individualism in the Western Liberal Tradition. And the idea is that individualism is very strong, especially in the north of Europe. And uh, what individualism means, essentially, is that uh, you're more open to strangers, you're, you're, you tend to judge people on the basis of their individual traits, not their group status, uh, and that sort of thing. And that's been a critical aspect of, of the modern world. And that's, you know, as I said, uh, this this really took off in the Enlightenment. Uh, and uh, uh, Western European societies uh, bought into the Enlightenment, France, but also Britain, and eventually Germany, and, and so on. Uh, and what that meant was that that there would be more acceptance of Jews. And, and but the the original idea was that, that that all people in Europe would become individualists. That is, they would all uh, eschew their group identities. And so Jews would would uh, sort of lose their, their their Jewish group, you know, emphasis, and and they would uh, you know sort of dissolve into these. Uh, into the wider society. Uh, but people were already saying in the 19th century that Jews had become a state within a state, that Jews had retained their organization, that Jews had retained their allegiance to the to, to Judaism. And, and that as a result, they still had all this influence and they were not acting as individualists. They were acting in favor of group interests. And so in the 19th century, you saw the development of these big international Jewish organizations, like in France, uh, the, called the Alliance is reality. You know, then there was an alliance of all the Jews, and they would, and they would, uh, they had influence on French foreign policy, and you had uh, Jewish activist groups in America, uh, um, which were actually able, even in 1910 or 19. Eight, I think uh, they were able to influence the trade agreement with Russia. Uh, and it was not in the American interest. It was in what they saw as Jewish interests. And uh, so Jews started to have, um, the, the organized Jewish community started to have vast influence beyond, um, you know, just, uh, just individual Jews. It was the Jewish organizations, their cooperation, their cohesion uh, that was making a difference. And of course, in the, in the West, uh, Jews were buying up media. That began in the 19th century. Uh, you look at, at, at anti-Jewish writing in the 19th century, and they make a note of that, that Jews have been buying up media, that they are uh, very powerful, that they form an elite, 
And, um, you know, Wilhelm Marr, for example, that saying that, that the Germans had been conquered by the Jews. The, the, I think his, the title of his book was The, the Victory of uh, Judaism Over Germanism or something like that. So it, it was, you know, a process that gradually developed. In, in America, certainly Jewish involvement in the media was noted uh, by Henry Ford in the 1920s early 1920s, <clears throat> noting that Jewish department stores uh, would, would uh, you know, advertise or polar advertising from, uh, from, 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 from newspapers that they didn't like. And early on, uh, the uh, New York Times was purchased by, by uh, Adolf Oaks, I, I guess, uh, with the help of, of wealthy Jews. And it was seen as a, in a, a way of, of getting Jewish influence in, in, the, in the media. And they very quickly took a sort of, you know, that it would, this media would be directed at at, at the elites, at this the highly educated people in America. And that's what we see now. The the uh, New York Times is seen as sort of the the mouthpiece of uh, educated, highly educated Americans. Um, but yeah, it still reflects Jewish interests. It, you know, it tries to be somewhat, you know, even-handed. You know, there's certainly right now they're they're doing some good things in the Palestinian war in Gaza, but in general, it is is a strong Jewish uh, bent, a sort of liberal cultural influence, LGBTQ, all that stuff, uh, very prominent in the New York Times. Of all of the public policies or political moments of the 20th century, which would you say was like the most emblematic? of Jewish power in U.S. politics? Like, what what legislation would you say definitively marked, like, a turning point where um, where Jews were clearly one of, like, uh, established themselves as the key driver of public policy in the U.S.? Well, I, I think, you know, Jewish influence, as I said, they lost the battle in 1924 in the immigration law. Um, but they, you know, continued to advocate for immigration, they sort of they, they continued to fund groups that were pro-immigration, uh, and uh, they they Jewish activism definitely focused on immigration as a main topic into the 1940s and then after World War II, anti-Semitism went way down in America. It became a very marginal phenomenon, uh, but Jews continued this, this this emphasis on immigration, multiculturalism. And uh, so in, in 1965, they finally broke through. In general, Jewish power, you know, increased gr gradually after World War II, but it increased dramatically in the 1960s. This is where you really see the, the uh, reorientation of America, not only with immigration, with the immigration law in 1965, but also civil rights law uh, and other uh, you know, sort of liberal causes that uh, were... Uh, you know, on the back burner or changing only very gradually. And um, so this this was the origin, really, of, of Jewish powerful influence. And it, and it uh, has not decreased, certainly, and, and it's still there. There are certainly other wealthy, you know, people who are not Jewish, but uh, Jews retaining enough power, enough influence to have a, a very important uh, influence on public debate, and what goes on in Congress? I mean, just you know, Jewish funding of political candidates. Look at the presidential elections, and uh, you know, sort of. The, if you look at Hillary versus Donald Trump, 
in 2016, uh, the Jewish money was by and large for Hillary in 2020, same way. Now, uh, you know, Jewish money is is behind uh, the Democrats, but also again, you know, they want Nikki Haley as a substitute. They have a strong anti-Trump faction. Uh, they used to be Republicans, and they became never Trumpers because Trump was talking about not being so interventionist in Israel and the Middle East, and uh, these neoconservatives, uh, of course, want that. That's their main interest is Israel. And they've had a strong influence in the Republican Party, still somewhat there. Uh, but in general, these neoconservatives have um, debarked to the uh, Biden administration and Democrats. And now you have Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland running the State Department, and they're very gung-ho pro-Israel. So... This influence has not ebbed. It sort of, it sort of changes party uh, from now and again, but it is there and uh, important factor in American life. Now let's go to Israel because that's a very germane topic right now due to the October seventh uh, attack on Hamas uh, by Hamas against Israel. In terms of the actors who promoted. Zionist interests in the U.S., did they tend to be religious Jews or were they more on the secular side based on your analysis of this subject? Would take the side of Israel? Yeah, like the Zion, the, the initial like pro-Zionist lobbying that called for like the creation of the state of Israel and um, that pushed for the formation and the diplomatic recognition of it. Were American Jews that were pro-Zionist, did they tend to be more secular or religious Jews? Yeah, I, I think um, early on, you know, in the 1930s, uh, um, Zionism was not a majority view in, in the Jewish community uh, because they felt it was dangerous, that, that Jews would be accused of, of more loyalty to Israel than to America. But then after Israel was established in 1948, uh, things changed dramatically. And certainly the, the, uh, there's been a consensus between the two parties to support Israel. And, uh, you know, that's again, that's because the Israel lobby is so powerful that uh, candidates who opposed Israel, uh, Charles Percy in the 1980s, uh, and, and people like that, Paul Finley, Famously, and they they've been opposed by by the Israel lobby. The the money goes to their opponents, so that that's really all parts of the Jewish community. However, I think you know you know there are critics of Israel within the Jewish community now, like Jew, Jewish Voices for Peace. If you look at the Mondeweiss website, they have a lot of criticisms of Zionism, and uh, they're Jewish, and they would like to remain in the Norm Schwekelstein as well. And and uh, so yeah, there there's remains that kind of uh, division within the Jewish community. Uh, but uh, I would say yeah, in general, that the more Orthodox Jews uh, are more pro-Israel and sort of without question. Uh, and now you see the dominance of these religious Jews and strongly ethno-nationalist Jews in Israel, and so yes. that you know the the old. Labor Party, which was dominant at the beginning of, of the state of Israel in 1948, they had no influence at all. And uh, the, every successive government since the 1970s, I guess, 80s, 
uh, has been more nationalist, more racialist. I mean, these, a lot of these Israeli ministers now are openly racialist. They they will uh, disparage the Palestinians uh, in any number of ways, and uh, really a sort of Jewish supremacist attitude pervades the present government. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I mean, the uh, right in Israel is... Definitely in driver's seat. Now there are liberal Jews, and, and the one the big issue for them though, there's been a national unity government. And so there's not much pushback. There is some pushback against what Netanyahu is doing. They want those those hostages back, you know. And that's the main thing. I don't I don't see a lot of criticism of of the uh, Israeli Defense Force, uh, how they're going about this in their genocidal way. Uh, but what you do see is is that you know liberal Jews in, in Israel are pushing back to some extent. And and uh you know the the big issue though is the Supreme Court of Israel and, and the Supreme Court of Israel has just struck on a law that would have allowed the Israeli parliament to override the Supreme Court. And, and Netanyahu has put off that that debate until after the war. But yeah, that, that produced a lot of, uh, you know, protests in this country among liberal Jews. They, they were outraged that uh, the Supreme Court would be overruled. It's a really, it's really opposite situation in, in the United States where people on the left want to be able to overrule the Supreme Court by, you know, congressional action. Uh, and uh, pack the Supreme Court or, you know, anyway, get any find a way to get a, a liberal majority in Israel it's it's really the opposite where the conservatives are have so much power that they want to uh, curtail whatever liberal influences are left and you know the Supreme Court in Israel is relatively liberal so they are um, clamping down on that that is interesting yeah because um just to play devil's advocate um I've seen some critics of like uh of yours or even just anybody that questions Jewish influence say that uh use that typical like to paraphrase that saying two Jews three opinions how you can't really uh describe Jewish like influence in monolithic terms and that there's like factions of Jews like where you have like more religious Jews or like some of the factions that you detailed there with regards to Israel. How do you respond to that when it comes to like explaining um, Jewish influence in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I, I see that all the time. And yeah, there's, there's def, I've never said that Jews are monolithic. There's always disagreement among Jews. We just said, you know, these liberal Jews in America, very opposed to what's going on in, in Israel. Uh, but the, what you always have to look at is where is Jewish power directed? Uh, where where is the main thrust of Jewish money and influence? Uh, and so, you know, one organization be the ADL. What well, what's the ADL about? Well, they're totally uh, pro-Israel. They they uh, and if you look at where the money is, the Israel lobby. You know, there's you have the Israel lobby, uh, organizations like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and then you have uh, J Street, which is also a more liberal. Uh, Jewish lobby, but they're still quite Zionist. Um, where's the power? Well, the power is with the APAC, with the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. That's what you have to look at. Uh, and the same with uh, with everything else. You can find conservative Jews. You can find Jews who who criticize uh, you know, the, the the power of the left uh, within the Jewish community um, and all that. But 
again, all is the question is, and I, and I again, I, I, my critics, I've had to do- deal with this many times over the years. Um, but what they don't want to do is really get into the nitty gritty of who has the power. Does the Israel lobby have the power? Or do the anti-Israel Jews have the power? Where's the money? Where's the power? And uh, it's pretty clear that that the power lies with the pro-Israel Jews. Mm. I find the current issues like in Israel to be very, quite fascinating because prior to the Hamas attack, like Israel looked like it was almost like in a state of like civil war where a coup was being like a de facto coup was being launched against the Netanyahu coalition government, as you mentioned, because of its hard right shift. It's all it's like basically demographics, because if you look at Israel, the rise in prominence of Orthodox, ultra Orthodox and the Mizrahim Middle Eastern Jews have really shifted Israeli politics to the hard ethno nationalist right where there will be like no way to like sugarcoat a ethno-nationalist state with, like, uh, so-called Western liberal democratic trappings. So it's going to become, like, a very, like, nasty uh, ethno-religious state. Do you think that Israel in this more nationalist iteration will survive as a coherent state? Because I see it becoming much more isolated on the world stage if it continues this route. And also, because of the um, proliferation of ultra-Orthodox Jews like the, the Haredim that don't serve in the military and are effectively on the public dole. I think that will put a lot of stress both in terms of financial matters and also like they will be deprived of a lot of necessary manpower. Do you think that Israel will survive as a coherent state by the end of the 21st century if it continues along this path? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I, I, I uh, you know, no, nobody knows exactly, but uh, I do think that um, Israel's behavior is becoming more and more untenable in the international community. Uh, and yet, because they retain so much influence in the United States and in Western Europe, and and Western Europe and the United States are so powerful, uh, that, that, you know, is nullified. So, but now, you know, there are, there are new alliances forming. Uh, China and Russia uh, are on the side of Iran. Iran is, is seen as Israel's main enemy. Uh, and um, you see these these countries, the so-called BRICS countries, and now they've expanded that. Uh, and, and a lot of Arab countries are signing on. And so the result is, is going to be, you know, that the United States is going to have a less dominant position in world politics. And uh, a lot of that's because of the behavior of Israel. It's simply unacceptable. And um, yet, at this time, they uh, still are extremely powerful. But yeah, and I think what Israeli, a lot of really pro-Israel patriots, uh, they want the United States to attack Iran. We already see some of that in this country. They would love to have the United States bomb Iran and... uh, that would essentially solidify Israel's power in the Middle East. But yeah, you got Russia and China uh, not on board anymore. They understand that if they continue to support this, that uh, ultimately the United States has been very anti-Russia 
Uh, and again, that's that's motivated by these neoconservatives who have uh, you know, put so much pressure on Russia to expand the borders of NATO and that sort of thing. And uh, they've still have that a very large influence. And Russia finally drew a red line and they went to war. Uh, we seem to have a stalemate now. So th- that's the basic picture. I, I do think that Israel has lost any kind of moral standing. And that's a critical thing. I mean, is, Jews have always presented themselves as innocent victims. Oh, we're all, we're, we've been persecuted throughout our history. But now, you, you mentioned the word Nazi. Well, yeah, people have made a lot of uh, analogies between Israel and, and, and Nazism and seen as uh, ethnically, you know, having an agenda, agenda of ethnic uh, cleansing and warfare and all that. So that's the kind of thing that is is absolutely going to be, be more and more common, I think. And in a sense, the, the Israeli right cannot be reined in easily. They are in control, and and they're having the babies. And even in America, the Jews having the babies are the ones on the right. And so they are going to be more and more ethno-nationalist and— um, there's a famous essay that I can never find it anymore, but it was by an Israeli writer, I believe it was by Amos Oz, and saying, you know, just talking about Israel is, is finally just sort of breaking free of any constraints from the diaspora and going all in ethno-nationalists and, and saying the hell with everybody. And, and you know, basically, the United States is apparently trying to get Israel to rein it in a bit, to tone it down. But Israel, as usual, says they don't care, even though the United States is is uh, such an important supporter of Israel. And uh, it's, it's also true, well, that's the main, the main point, is that the, the, the diaspora Jews are going to be totally alienated from Zionism uh, because there's just not morally feasible, and they can't defend their position as a victim anymore, which has been so important to the image of Jews in the West. They were the ones that went to the gas chambers and all that, the Holocaust, uh, and uh, but going way before that. And so that's a critical thing for Jews, and, and they're, they're, they're losing it, obviously. Um, so we'll see what, what the upshot of that is, but... You know, you can easily paint a bleak picture for Jews, but on the other hand, they are armed to the teeth. They have nuclear weapons. They have submarine, nuclear submarines. They have missiles galore. They are a world military power, and and don't ever, you know, minimize that. That that is a critical thing, and I think they feel they can go it alone uh, to a certain extent. I mean, God knows they want to keep American support, but. They're certainly resisting the Biden administration, trying to tone it down. And they, you know, American presidents have criticized Israel for the settlements ever since the 1967 war, to no avail. And they just don't do anything. The, the, the United Nations has condemned them over and over again, resolution after resolution, condemning the settlements. They don't do anything. So they have completely acted you know, completely uh, without any influence from the United States or anyone else, really, if they think it it conflicts with their interests. So, 
Very interesting stuff. One final question. Do you think the 21st century will be like the um, the century where Jewish influence will recede on the world stage? Because I look at the rise of alternative media and just more content in general, questioning Israel, which I think is the first step towards questioning a lot of these ethno-nationalist um, Jewish interest groups like the ADL and everything, questioning their uh, legitimacy and the uh, and their overall intentions. Do you think that this could be like the century where this influence starts to uh, decline and if not get constrained altogether? I would hope so. But uh, you know, they, a big focus of the Jewish, uh, organized Jewish community, like the ADL, is, is in favor of censorship. They really want to dominate social media. And I, I've been bumped off Twitter even after Musk was on. And I don't know exactly what happened, but they won't even let me appeal it. And um, a lot of other people have been bumped off. Uh, so, yeah, they want censorship. And they want a, a absolute control over the messages that come out. That's why Jewish uh, ownership and involvement in the media is so important to them. But, yeah, they, they, it might decline. You know, as Israel's behavior just becomes indefensible. And I think it already is pretty much indefensible. You had to be a, a real staunch Jewish patriot, uh, ethno-nationalist, or seriously religious Jew to accept this kind of stuff. But I, I don't know. I don't think Jewish power is going to decline until they lose their status as an elite. Uh, that as long as you have so many very wealthy Jews willing to contribute money to political parties— and to support the Israel lobby and so on, it's very hard to see that happening. So I, I'm not optimistic uh, that it's going to decline anytime soon. It might, for the reasons we've, we've talked about, but I don't know. I, I remain skeptical of that. Well, that remains to be seen. Again, yeah. um, Dr. McDonald, I, I really appreciate you coming on to my show to talk about this subject because I believe it merits very lengthy discussion and scrutiny because we do live in a time of mass uh, censorship. But before we leave, please let my listeners know where they can follow your content and Occidental Observer's body of work. Yeah, the actualobserver.net uh, is is one place uh, that I'm uh, deeply involved in. And, and um, I also edit, edit the Accidental Quarterly, my website, is kevinmcdonald.net, no no spaces or peers or anything. But I've noticed that, I you know, if you put in kevinmcdonald.net on either Google or Bing, they will not take you there. They'll say it's an unsafe website and all that. Uh, but um, so that that's part of the censorship that goes on. And uh, I just have to accept that. They banned my books, Culture Critique, and uh, Separationist Contents, both from Amazon and from Barnes & Noble. So, yeah, they, they want to keep this word out. They don't want to talk about it. They they really don't want to have debate, an honest, open debate about it. And whatever debate there is is going to be sort of behind the scenes. And, and you know, if you look at my Wikipedia page, my God, it's like I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm the worst person I ever lived. And no balance, no attempt. Uh, if I were to try to edit it or one of my supporters— they would immediately edit it out. It's extremely, that's the way information works now in our society. It, it's totally controlled, totally, um, you know, it, it, it's just uh, extremely 
tenuous for someone like me. All right. Thank you so much again for coming on, Dr. McDonald. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank my audience for tuning in to another episode of El Nino Speaks. And until next time, El Nino has spoken.